Between my first and second year in college, the president of the, the institution changed. So the, uh, the president, the man who had been president during my freshman year, my first year, retired. And then a new man came in and took over as president before my second year. And after a few months of my second year of college, I was walking across campus and I passed the new president. And as we passed, I greeted him and he greeted me by name. And that shocked me. I couldn't believe that he knew my name and that he recognized me and that he took the time to greet me. Out of thousands of students, he knew who I was. I don't know why to this day. I'm not sure how. I don't recall having met him before that. But it made me feel special, to say the least. We have focused a lot in the book of Acts on the things that God has called us to do for him. We are to be his witnesses. We are to share his gospel with the nations. And last week, we heard Paul recite his example to the Ephesian elders and then give them a charge, what they were supposed to be doing, what they needed to continue to do, to be in the word of God, to keep watch over themselves and the flock, to preach the gospel faithfully, to maintain repentance and faith as the central message of evangelism. And sometimes when we hear all these things that we're supposed to do, and we are supposed to do them, I'm not suggesting we're not to do them. But when we hear these lists, they can become a burden to us and we forget that everything we are called to do for God is more than balanced by what God has done and continues to do for his children, for those who are called according to his purpose. And today, what I want us to see through some experiences that Paul had in Acts is that God knows each one of his children. For some of us, that might seem to be a a difficult reality to grasp. We might get it up here intellectually, but we may not get it here in our heart. That God knows us and calls us by name. Child, you are mine. And he says our names. He knows our names. And because he knows us and knows everything about us, he works in us to bring about his will. You know, Paul suffered deeply and often for the sake of the gospel. But that didn't change the fact that God knew him intimately and that God was present to him to work in him and provide exactly what he needed when he needed it. Over chapters 22 and 23 of Acts, Luke relates three different visions that God gave Paul. Three times where God either spoke in an audible voice or appeared in some form, some visible form, to Paul. And each of those visions is going to reveal different ways that God works in his people ways that God worked in Paul, but it's going to go beyond that. It's going to show the heart of God for his people so that because that is who God is, because that's his heart, because that's the way he relates with his people, that which he did for and worked for Paul is something that he works universally for his children. The first vision, I'm going to need to give you some background and context for it. 
Paul has returned to Jerusalem. We've been following along as he ends his third and final missionary journey. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he's been going about with a Greek believer. And because of that, there are some people who falsely accuse Paul of taking an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple courts, which, according to Jewish law, was prohibited. And these accusations immediately ignite a firestorm. A mob arises, they pounce on Paul, and they begin to beat him to death. That is their goal, to kill him. The commander of the Roman garrison at the fortress of Antonia in Jerusalem, with some of his soldiers, arrives and intervenes to stop the murder, but they still arrest Paul and take him into custody because the Romans actually supported this aspect of Jewish law about um, taking uncircumcised Gentiles into the temple. So Paul's arrested, and with the soldiers, surrounded by the soldiers, he is marched up the steps into the fortress of Antonia. On the way up the steps, Paul appeals to the commander and says, could I stop just for a moment and address the crowd? Can I defend myself? The commander agrees, so Paul turns on the stairs, and the text says that all the crowd grew silent. And Paul begins to do what? Well, in my circumstance, I would probably try to defend myself. I would have said, look, I didn't do what you're accusing me of. I'm innocent of that. Yes, I was with that man, that Greek man, but I didn't take him into the temple. Paul doesn't do any of that. If we've come to know anything about Paul at this point, we know that Paul's going to take every opportunity for the gospel. So instead of defending himself, he stands on those stairs. We can only imagine what Paul thinks inside Paul going, <laughs> look at all these people. And they all just got quiet. So Paul begins by sharing with them his Jewish credentials, telling them how he had been educated in the law of Moses, that he was a Pharisee, that he was super zealous for the law of Moses, that he had even traveled to other cities to persecute those who called themselves Christians, those who had become messianic, who were following Jesus. So after he establishes his credentials, Paul then starts to share his own story about how he came to meet Jesus, about he was converted. And we've already read this story. We accompanied uh, Paul when it happened <laughs> earlier in Acts. Four different times in Acts, this story is repeated. Luke gives it a lot of space and a lot of importance because of what followed from it. So as Paul is sharing this story of what happened to him on the road to Damascus, he tells the crowd about this first vision. I'm going to be reading from Acts 22, beginning with verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, 
the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Here's our first point this morning. God works to bring about conversion. That's what we see in this first vision. God is the initiator of conversion. It's God who works in Paul to bring about his salvation. Jesus is the one who appears to Paul. Paul wasn't seeking Jesus, quite the opposite. He was trying to wipe out his very memory. Jesus is the one who appears in blinding light. Jesus is the one who speaks to Paul. He's the one who introduces himself to Paul. uh, Paul, let me introduce myself to you. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He is the one who convicts Paul of sin, and he is the one who shows Paul what he is to do next. Do you see the care of God? Do you see his love for Paul? It's a beautiful picture of how the initiative of salvation is entirely in God's hands. So what's our first point? God works to bring about conversion. God works in his people to bring about conversion. The second vision that Paul recounts comes at the end of his testimony. So he's still standing on the steps of the fortress, and he relates this. Verse 21 of chapter 22. Then the Lord said to me, I'm sorry, we're going to start with verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance And saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In this vision, we see God working to bring two things to Paul. Number one, direction. Number two, conviction. What is the direction that God gives him? Leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. How often do we long to know God's will, right? God's immediate will in a specific circumstance. Well, in this case, God gave it to Paul. He said, leave Jerusalem immediately. He gives him direction, but he gives him something else as well. And I just mentioned that it's conviction. Because even though God was very clear in communicating his will, Paul resisted. He didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Paul argues his point with God, saying that, of course, the people would listen to him since he had been so publicly anti-Christian in the past. And Paul's here implying that maybe God needs to rethink his strategy, saying, God, I'm, I'm the best person for this job right here in Jerusalem. And he he recites again, the people know me. They know how much I hated you and how I acted against you and I was persecuting people and how I was there giving approval to Stephen's death. So I'm really the perfect person to evangelize the Jews here in Jerusalem. God, rethink 
your strategy. Interesting, isn't it? I just want to draw a, a little bit of a parallel here as well. Um, there are times where maybe we think that uh, there's only one person that could possibly perform a certain role. Maybe it's a pastoral role. Maybe you feel that way about your pastor. And that as he's preparing to leave, you're thinking he's making a mistake or that God, God, how could you do this? There's only one person that can fill this position and this is the perfect person and I can't imagine anyone else doing it better. But God knows what he's doing. And in Jerusalem, God knew what he was doing when he told Paul to leave. So Paul's arguing. He's saying, I'm the best choice. And how does God convict him? Go. (laughs) Paul gives all his arguments and God says, go. Paul's like, but I want to be the one to do this. I want to be the one to, to lead the Jews to Christ. I want, I have this ambition because I worked against you. I, I'm the right man. I'm the right guy. God, you've got it wrong. God says, go, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. God has his plan and he knows what he's doing. Let me ask you something else. Don't we often think that it would be so much easier to obey God, it would be so much easier to follow his will if he would just make it super clear? Don't we feel that way? I mean, maybe we look at, at this experience that Paul had and said, oh, that must be so nice to have God appear and directly tell me what I'm supposed to do. We think about other biblical stories Maybe Daniel, when he's there in Babylon, and the finger of God writes God's will and God's prophecy on the wall. And we say, God, we've got a nice big wall right here. Wouldn't you do that? It would make life so much easier. It would make it easier to obey you. It would make it easier to follow you if you would just be clear. Well, we have many examples in Scripture that show us that that's not necessarily the case. Paul here is one of them. God says to him, clearly, leave Jerusalem immediately. Well, God, let's talk about that. What about Jonah? Jonah had no doubt about what God's will was. God spoke directly and told him, and he did the opposite, right? The point I'm making with this is that God has already revealed the vast majority of his will to us in his word. And somehow we think that's insufficient. Or we think, well, we we don't really want to worry ourselves about following God's revealed will in Scripture. I want to know God's specific will for me right now. And maybe God's saying, well, my specific will for you right now is my specific will for you that I've already revealed in Scripture. So don't ask me for my direction. Don't ask me for my will if you're not already following what I have already revealed to you. God works in his children to give direction and to bring about conviction. Conviction of sin and conviction of truth. And this brings us to our third and final vision. It happens a little later. After Paul says to the crowd in Jerusalem that Jesus had said to him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd goes nuts again. 
Because remember, we are still dealing with this underlying revulsion that Jews have for Gentiles. A refusal to accept that God could care for and love the Gentiles as much as he cares for and loves the Jews. So when Paul says that Jesus, this man that he's claiming was the Messiah, the Son of God, was sending him as an apostle to the Gentiles, they go nuts. Bedlam breaks loose and the mob goes crazy with anger and they're trying to get to Paul again. So much so that the soldiers have to lift Paul up above their heads to carry him up the steps and get him inside the fortress to safety. Once they get into the fortress, the commander has his soldiers stretch Paul out so that he can be flogged. And as they're about to flog him, as they're about to whip him for disturbing the peace, Paul says, is it lawful to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? And here, Paul is really crafty in using this. He was a Roman citizen, and the Roman law stated very clearly that a Roman citizen could not be punished without a trial first. So the commander, in fear, actually backs down. Paul is not flogged. He keeps him in prison, though. And the next day, Paul appears before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious governing body. You can read the account for yourself in chapter 23, but again, Paul plays a masterful card of strategy. Because what he does, as the Sanhedrin is examining him, he just throws out one short phrase. And he said, the reason I'm on trial here is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul is saying that as it relates to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who had died and risen again. But if you recall, there was constant animosity and debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about this very point. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. So Paul just kind of sneaks that in and just says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really just on trial today because of resurrection of the dead. And then he sits back and watches chaos take over. Because the Pharisees say, well, I don't find anything wrong with this man. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. Meanwhile, the Sadducees say, well, we find much wrong with him because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And the two sides cannot agree on what to do with Paul. So he goes back to prison. But no judgment is taken. That night, in prison, this is what happens. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This time, God works to encourage his child. Just that phrase, the Lord stood near Paul, brings comfort. The Lord is always near. But in this case specifically, given the context and what Paul was facing, God chose to give Paul a visible sense of his nearness. And then the Lord speaks. It's a very short message. Take courage. When God says this to Paul, what he's actually saying is that he is offering Paul his courage. 
He's giving Paul courage. It would be similar that if I had a tray of brownies here this morning, which I wish I did, but I don't, and I were to offer one to you and say, take a brownie. I'm not telling you make a brownie for yourself. I'm not telling you look in your purse or your wallet and find a brownie or in your pocket. I'm not telling you to go out and buy a brownie. I'm offering you, I'm giving you a brownie. So when God says to Paul, take courage, he's saying, Paul, I'm giving you courage. It's my courage. I am encouraging you. I am putting my courage within you. Why? Because I know what's coming next. And he tells Paul, as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, you're going to do that in Rome. The Lord works to encourage his children. Now, remember, he encourages them differently in different situations. A tendency that we have is to note that God acts in one way at one specific moment, and then we make the assumption that in similar situations, he will always act the same way. That's not true. This is at least the second time that Paul has been in prison. What happened the first time in Philippi? In the middle of the night, major earthquake, their chains fell off, they were freed, and the next day, Paul and Silas leave the city. That doesn't happen this time. What about Peter? Remember when he was in prison the second time? Actually, it was the third time. He was in prison, and what happened? An angel of the Lord appeared to him. His guards were asleep. His chains fell off. They walked right out through the doors, out onto the street, and Peter was freed. But this time, God works differently. He does not, it's not that he does not encourage Paul, but his encouragement does not come by releasing him from prison, but rather by an affirmation of his presence with Paul where he was. And it's interesting to note with this forecast, this prophecy that Paul was going to take the gospel to Rome, remember from the very first day that we started studying Acts, we had this vision of how God was working by his spirit in ever-widening concentric circles to spread the gospel from Jerusalem, then all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Rome was the ends of the earth. It was the center of the empire. It was the farthest reaches of civilization as far as someone from Jerusalem would be able to identify. So the gospel continues its march. Something else I think is just absolutely beautiful because Paul is going to get to Rome, by the way, if you haven't ever read the book of Acts, he will get to Rome. And you know how he gets there? As a guest of the Roman government. The Roman government supports Paul's final missionary journey. They provide his housing, they provide his food, and they provide his transportation. Yes, he's in prison the whole time. But think about that. God's providence working even through imprisonment. That would be a very difficult and expensive journey for an individual to make. So Paul ends up in Rome, courtesy of the Roman government, spreading the gospel of Christ. The Roman government supported missions. Just want you to know that. The Lord works to encourage his children. Now, when we consider all three of these visions together and all that God does through them for Paul, converting, convicting, directing, and encouraging, 
I think it's natural for us to long for that kind of clear communication from God, as I mentioned earlier. We think, God, if you would just give me a vision. God, if you would just speak to me audibly by your spirit, that would mean so much. We think how amazing that would be. And while I believe it's possible for God to do those things if he chooses, a vision is not something that we should seek. We're not told to seek a vision or to seek visions of God in Scripture. In fact, I think seeking visions, like being fixated upon having a vision, can distract us from what we are told to seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's why I have not focused this morning on the how, meaning we haven't focused on how God came in visions, but on the content of each vision, the fact that God worked through these visions to bring conversion, conviction, direction, and encouragement. And though, as I said, maybe you long to have a vision of God. But let me ask you a question. Are you a believer in Jesus? Are you a believer in Jesus? Have you come to him in repentance for your sin, acknowledging that you are irreparably broken and that you can never attain to his standard of perfection? And in that repentance, to come in belief in Jesus that his death paid the price for your sin. That he died instead of you. So that he can forgive you and so that he can give you his life. And so that you will then have eternal life with him forever. Does that describe you? Then that means that God has already worked in you to bring about conversion. If you've already repented of sin, either originally, but then along the way, as you have been convicted of sin and you've repented of it and confessed it, then again, God has already been working in you to bring about conviction. Have you ever obeyed any of God's commands in Scripture? Any, no matter how small. Have you ever obeyed any of them? If so, then that has been as a result of God ministering to you his direction. This is what I want you to do. This is my will. Has a particular verse or passage of scripture ever been an encouragement to you? Or maybe a fellow brother or sister in Christ has had a message, has shared with you something that was deeply encouraging to you. Has that ever happened to you, either from scripture or from other people? If so, then God has been working in you to encourage you. So let's not fixate on the vision, but let's be grateful for the character of God and what he has already given. Can God give visions? Absolutely, he is God. But if we focus only on the method, we might miss the content and the character and what God gives us already in his word and in his church. And the final point about these visions is that each of them have implications that go far beyond the individual. So when Paul was converted, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, it was not only so that Paul would be redeemed himself and be in relationship with God. It was part of God's plan to reach the entire Gentile world with the gospel. When God appears to Paul and tells him, that he's going to go to Rome, is it just because he's sending Paul on a vacation? 
Is it just so that Paul himself will be more encouraged? No, it's because God has plans for spreading his gospel through Paul. So God's plan is always beyond just us. Think about the impact that Paul has had on history. Think about the the fact that we're talking about him today. Think about the fact that this man, and he's just the man, that we study today letters that he wrote thousands of years ago. As my family and I have been preparing to move, we have been going through our old keepsakes and, and things that we've that have special significance for us. And I was going through some of my things and I came across a letter that I had written to my grandmother uh, many, many years ago. I read that letter. Guess what? There's nothing worth studying in that letter. You know, I could give you a copy of it if you really, really want it. And you could read it and say, there's nothing worth studying here. No one's going to put this in a book and have and require students to memorize it or learn it. Because the Holy Spirit is working through Paul. The Holy Spirit is transforming him, not just for him but for the world. And for us, it's easy for us to think, well, that's Paul, though. That's Paul. But every one of us, every daughter or son of God is going to come in contact with other people. We are going to have an impact on other people. And God, when he brings about in us conversion or direction or conviction or encouragement, his plan goes far beyond just you and just me. So today, take comfort in the fact that God knows you, that he knows exactly what you need and when you need it, and you can rest in the reality that he not only knows what you need, but he works to give us what we need in his time directly from him. He is working in that regard. Seek him, his word, his kingdom, his righteousness, and the good of his body, the church.